you're guests and you've got little ones, there's a place, a table out in the hallway where you can check your kids in. You can get them squared away, take down their information. For the rest of us who are going to be staying in the room, we are going to be jumping back into the book of Colossians this morning. We're picking back up in our series. We are going to be closing out chapter 1. So we are at the very end of chapter 1. We're looking at verses 24 to 29. The title of the sermon is The Mystery Revealed. So look with me at God's Word, Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. Hear God's holy and authoritative Word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone Mature in Christ. For this I, Paul, toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts. Now, everyone seated in this room has something in common. We've got many things in common, no doubt, if we were to examine it. But there's one thing I want to draw our attention to this morning. It's this. Everyone in this room is a glory seeker. It's something that's written into the human DNA. This pull that we have to seek glory. This pull to be around glory. We sang about glory this morning, right? There's that sense and that desire. There's a reason why families get in vans and cars where they don't have enough seats and don't have enough legroom and drive thousands of miles across the country to go look at the Grand Canyon. It's not because really deep pits in the ground are cool. It's because there is a sense of awe and splendor and glory there. You think of the dreams of little kids. We've got a Captain America shirt on over here. A glory seeker, aware that there's something cool about Captain America. Kids want to be Captain America. If you were like me, you wanted to be Wolverine with the the adamantium claws, right? I mean, Wolverine was the best. Maybe in fifth grade you wrote an essay about being the President of the United States. If you're a sports fan, you dream of, of winning the Super Bowl. Coming up to the plate. Bottom of the ninth inning, two outs, World Series on the line. The pitch comes in. You hit it. Home run. We were actually sitting in care group on Thursday night. And Zach, one of our worship leaders, he was a tennis player, was describing to us how as a kid he would envision winning Wibbleton. And in his head he had like this pose that he would do. We actually made him get in the middle of the living room floor and do the pose for us like, on both knees, like hands up, rack it out. I won Wimbledon. The reason why you dream things like that is because deep down inside of you is a yearning for glory. The bottom line is no one, no one dreams about participation ribbons. 
Oh, the potation. It was so awesome. Everyone had a ribbon just like mine. It was so special because there's nothing special about it. Nobody dreams about that. It's ingrained in each of us a baseline desire to achieve glory, to seek glory, to be near glory. But the substance of that glory defines us. Where you seek glory, the kind of glory you seek, defines who you are. Is the glory you're seeking, the glory that you're living for and striving for, is it worthwhile and eternal? Or is it transient? Is it dust? Is it going to fade away? Michael Jordan seems like he has a lot of glory. But I couldn't tell you who the most famous gladiator in Rome was. What we'll see in our text this morning is an answer to that millennia-old mystery. Where can glory be found? What I want to show this morning is that Paul discovered the answer. That is, he found the mystery of the hope of glory. In this very passage, Paul lays out for us where true glory resides. And he's going to describe what it produces. So namely, this is what we're going to see. If I had to summarize it in one sentence. The mystery of the hope of glory leads believers to maturity. That's Paul's big point this morning. The mystery of the hope of glory leads believers, leads the saints towards maturity. Now to unpack that sentence and and the big theme of this text, I want to answer two questions. First, what is the mystery Paul's talking about in our text? And then second, what does maturity have to do with glory? So in that order, first, what is the mystery? Our first question. What's the mystery of the hope of glory? The heart of this passage is wrestling with that, that Paul has described from He says, there is a mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations. A mystery hidden for ages. Do you have any any mystery lovers in the room? Well, hardy boys can eat your heart out. Here we're talking about the mystery for the ages. What does Paul mean when he says that? Is this some sort of Da Vinci Code-esque mystical quest for secret knowledge? Our culture loves it. There's a burgeoning book industry making tons of money off of secret societies and and mysteries and knowledge known only by elite groups. They protect these secrets from disclosure to the broad public. Is that what's going on in Colossians 1? No, that's not what Paul means by mystery. How do we know this? Well, look at verses 25 to 26. I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you for this purpose. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To make the word of God fully known. Connection. The mystery hidden for ages, but now revealed to his saints. This mystery that is being revealed is a full knowledge and understanding of the word of God. It's not some secret society, some some mystical knowledge. What Paul's describing is the unveiling of God's plan of salvation. Where is the mystery? It's hidden in plain sight. 
yet still hidden for ages and generations and only now revealed, revealed, Paul says, to a specific group of people. Not to the skull and bones group from Yale, elite as they may think they are, but to the saints, to the people of God, revealed and explained in the New Testament. This mystery has been hidden by sin. It's been shrouded from view. If you don't have the faith to see it, you don't know that it's there. But it's revealed to God's people, not through cryptography, not through code breaking. It's not like on a Christmas story where you run up to your bathroom and you get this little decoder pen, little orphan decoder pen, and you sit there and you, you decipher out the code and you look at the, you do all the lettering and the numbering. You say, here's the mystery. The code is, remember to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> a crummy commercial. You know, he's like, all of his hope is building towards the glory of the decoder pen. He listens to that radio set, little orphan Annie, and then it's, remember to drink your Ovaltine. Bummer. There's no letdown with this mystery. It's revealed to God's people, not by code breaking, but through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So we're unpacking that first question. What is the mystery? At the most basic level, it's the Word of God made fully known. But how has the Word of God been made fully known? What is the mystery that's been revealed to the saints? We'll read verse 27 again. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. That's a lot of words. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Superlative, rich sentence. And it hits at how fickle our hearts can be. This glorious implication of the gospel, this mystery revealed, can become so mundane and dry. Did you catch what Paul has put down in shorthand there? He's just described why the gospel is good news for most of the people gathered in this room. Because the riches of the glory of this mystery are great among the Gentiles. Listen to how Paul puts it in the sister letter to Ephesians. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You hear the language which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Illumination. Verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That, friends, is the gospel brought home. The gospel laid at your doorstep. From the time of Abraham, it's been known that his descendants, out of his descendants, there was going to come a blessing for the nations. But this, the Gentiles as full covenant members, as, as fellow heirs, that's more than mere salvation. Here, Paul is pointing to the mystery revealed. 
It's not just the Jews. It's not just those people who can look to Abraham and say, we are literally from his flesh. We are his descendants, and that's why we can hope in God. No, it's not just the Jews, but it's the Greeks. It's, it's Englishmen and Africans and Koreans and Chinese and Russians and Indians and Arabs. We've all been made full partakers of the covenant of Christ's own blood through faith and the grace of God. Members of the same body without distinction. A body, a church, a people, a fellowship that transcends language and nationality and culture. So what is the mystery? Well, it's the reality that all people have been made heirs of the riches of this glory. But it's also more than that. For Paul, the riches of the glory of this mystery are truly awesome. The very core of this hope of glory, we'll see in a moment, is something that really ravishes logic. I want you to think back a couple of weeks back. Think about how Christ has been described in the preceding verses. I'm going to actually read it for us. In verses 15 to 20. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. One of the most glorious descriptions ever written. You do not and cannot get more breathtaking and glorious than Jesus Christ. Paul sketches it out for us in Colossians 1. And the mystery revealed is this. Look at verse 27 of our passage. All of that glorious Christ, verse 27, to them, to the Gentiles, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here it is. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. You have to read verse 27 in the context of the rest of chapter 1 to understand the enormity and the magnitude of what Paul is saying. Christ in you, the hope of glory, not a guy in you. No, the God-man, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, the one by whom all things were created, the one for whom they're all created, the one who's preeminent in all things, the one who holds all things together, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That same individual, Paul says, Christ Jesus, that individual through the power of the Spirit indwells His people. He's here this morning. The Spirit brings His presence. As the body gathers, the head is here. So look around the room. These fellow believers, these saints you pray with and for, these, these members of your care group, the, the people you, you mow the grass of the church with, people you go serve at Forest Avenue with, 
Think of who Paul says they are. Yes, the chosen saints of God, but more than that, united to and indwelt with the very presence of the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is the ground of our hope for future glory. This This is the foundation that it's built upon. That the one now glorified, the one that we sang to this morning, the one that's seated at the right hand of Most High God, Jesus Christ, at the same time, through the power of the Spirit, dwells in you. To use the southern sense, dwells in y'all. Plural. This is the greatest possible assurance that we will be partakers in a glory, the likes of which the world has never seen. What's the hope of glory? That the King of glory indwells you. And when he returns, he will return in glory and welcome you into it. There's so much more to unpack here. I don't want us to lose sight of the bigger picture. Yes, there is hope beyond anything the world has to offer. Glory that that far surpasses presidents. Way beyond movie stars and billionaires. But don't lose sight of the true riches this glory offers. Think of, for a moment, think for a second, what the word glory actually means. What is, what is glory referring to? Well, for man, glory merely describes one's wealth. Maybe, maybe your car is your glory. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's the power that you wield. But for God, glory denotes His very nature. His presence being shown and displayed to mankind and all creation. God's glory is the manifestation of His holiness. It's the display of God's character to a world obsessed with lesser glories. We sit there in a handful of dirt. Wow! Amazing! And there's a diamond sitting here. Glory is a helpful way to think of it. Glory is God going public with his greatness. That's what glory is. So the richness of this mercy is not, thank God, glory just for the sake of glory. The end goal is not just that we get glory and we get to be a part of it. That's not the biggest purpose. No, it's glory for the sake of God himself. That's the point of the glory that God is made much of. Remember what we said at the very beginning? How you seek glory, where you seek glory, is what defines you. Listen how Sam Storm puts it. Christ is not simply the reason we can hope for glory, but Christ is himself that glory, the glory for which we long, the glory for which we have been predestined, The glory that makes all suffering and pain and disappointment in this life unworthy of comparison. That glory is the person and presence of Jesus Christ himself. He is our glory. Being with him, to know him, to see him, to relish him and rejoice in his beauty. Is the glory for which we hope. Our hope is Christ. Period. 
full stop. So ask yourself this. Where does your hope rest? Where, where are you seeking glory? Does your hope rest in a raise at work? Maybe a different job altogether. Maybe you're just thinking, I would just like a job, period. Is it a different category? Does your, your hope rest in health? In, in family? Finances? Fame? Whatever it is, make it personal. Don't think about where your neighbor hopes. Think about where you hope. Where do you dream of glory when you lay awake in bed at night? And is it glory? Or is it dust? If you've listened to this description of Christ in you, the hope of glory, and felt something stirring, just just felt something inside you being drawn, you felt a desire for meaning, for something you've always wanted but, but never known, it's because this is the very reason why you were created. This is the reason you draw breath, the reason why you exist on this planet. You were made to know the joy of Christ Jesus. You were made to know Him, not just as a historical person, not just as this guy that we sing to, but to know Him personally as Lord and Savior. Every molecule of your being was designed and created by God. Every cell in your body is being held together at this very moment by Christ Jesus so that for the purpose that you would turn to Him and treasure Him above everything else. If you feel that this morning, Please understand what Paul is saying. When he says the Gentiles get to know this, he's saying everybody has access. Doesn't matter what side of the tracks you were born on. Doesn't matter where you went to college or if you went to college. Doesn't matter what your job is if you have a job. Doesn't matter if you're married or you were married or it's ended in divorce. You can have access to Jesus by faith. You can know the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ himself. The radiance of the glory of God. You were created for it. You were created to know him and to treasure him and to relish him for all eternity. I think we see clearly the answer to our first question. What is the hope of glory? Remember what we said we're going to discover this morning. The mystery of the hope of glory leads believers to maturity. The mystery of the hope of glory. Christ in you. Right? The unveiling of the plan of salvation. All people have access to God now through Christ Jesus. The mystery of the hope of glory. Second, second part of the clause leads believers to maturity. So question two. What does maturity have to do with the hope of glory? I think there can be a temptation to gloss over the last part of that passage. The meat, I mean, I'm studying it, and it seems like the substance and the power and the stuff that you just really get charged up about, it seems like it's in the first few verses, and then it sort of slows down. 
But it doesn't slow down. The, the last sentence, the last two verses, they're giving us the application. They're taking all of that and bringing it home. After painting this a sounding picture of hope of glory, Paul calls the church to a task. Simply this, proclaim Christ in us, the hope of glory. Proclaim this, but proclaim it with a purpose. And the purpose is this. This is why he toils, why Paul labors, why he puts all this effort forward for his ministry. That he might present everyone mature in Christ. Paul goes on to say that this, bringing believers to maturity, is why, at the end of the, at the, end of the letter, he's going to say, remember me in my chains. It's why he views imprisonment as something worthwhile to be endured. So he can present people as mature in Christ. So let's take a closer look. First we see this maturity that Paul talks about. It's not an individualized thing. It's not a me and Jesus thing. This community, this, this maturity is a community project. Read verse 28 again. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, the we could just be a reference to Paul and Timothy's preaching ministry. And the everyone just include the wider body of Christ. We might think that until we read later in the letter in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ, remember the way the word ties into this mystery in our text? Let that word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The connection with our passage this morning is unmistakable. Both make clear reference to the word of God, both reference teaching, and in the original Greek, the word for admonish and the word for warn, that they're the same word. But in 3.16, there's an unmistakable fact that the pursuit of maturity happens in the context of community, in the context of a local body that fellowships together. The preaching office of the church, when a pastor stands behind the pulpit and proclaims God's word, it is central to the calling of the church. Churches that, that don't labor well in preaching or minimize preaching or just kind of push it off to the side, they're not being faithful to their calling. Those pastors aren't being faithful to their calling. But as central as that is, it will never achieve its goal without the full commitment of the body to take the word proclaimed and see it applied. Pastors can proclaim God's word every Sunday. But without commitment and partnership from everyone gathered here to teach and warn to exhort one another from those messages and from the scriptures, the effect is truncated. This toil and struggle of Paul's is the definition of biblical fellowship. It's why we gather in care groups. It's why we have to be, if we're going to fulfill our calling as the body of Christ, we have to be committed together to teaching and warning one another from God's word, toiling together with Paul. That word toiling is loaded. It's not just sort of like flippantly, oh, I got a little extra space in my calendar here for a half hour. 
I had a really easy week at work, so I'm feeling a little extra energy, so I'm going to make it the care group. No, toiling, putting forth effort. Paul, Paul says it in a sweet way, doesn't he? This is, this is the reason I toil. This is the reason I do all this. I toil, I struggle with all His, God's energy that He powerfully works within me. Remember, I'm indwelt by the risen Christ. I'm filled with His Spirit. The Spirit that brings the power of resurrection. I have that in me, and I'm not just supposed to sit there and, and kind of fritter it away. Oh, no, I have it. And with it, I toil. Not for my own glory but for your maturity. A.K.A. I toil, I struggle with all God's power that you, brother, that you, sister, might be satisfied in Jesus. Might find more joy in Jesus. Might reflect Jesus more fully. There's a deep connection between our maturity and the hope of glory. The hope of glory is the fact that Christ indwells all believers. The Holy Son of God is united to the body of believers. And Paul declares that this maturity of these people, already united to Christ, is his great toil. We've already covered that. Why does he say that? What, is, what does maturity look like? What makes somebody mature? If you had to give, I was going to give you five words or less to say, what does maturity look like? I could do it in two. Like Christ. That's maturity. Like Christ. Christ-likeness. The word translated mature literally means complete. It means, means perfect. In other words, those who reach maturity in Christ are those who are sanctified and holy. Romans 8, 29-30. Famous chapter, famous verses, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined. This is God setting out before time begins. I'm predestining you. I'm giving you this destiny. Those who I've foreknown. Those who I've chosen. I'm giving you this. That you would be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn. Wow, that sounds a lot like Colossians, doesn't it? Firstborn of the dead, the head of the church. Why is he head of the church? Why is he preeminent? Why is he firstborn from the dead? This is why. Because the Father foreknew and chose and predestined that all these people would be gathered in and conformed to the image of the God-man. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Being conformed to the image of Christ, what Colossians calls our being mature, complete, and perfect, is parallel in thought with being glorified. Our maturity and future glorification are related and connected, and they're related by necessity. In our union with Christ, we're indwelt by the Son. This Son described in Colossians 1 and all this glory, this Son who is preeminent in all creation, this Son who is perfect. In holiness. Where's the place that God has known that God has gone most public with his glory? Jesus. His holiness on display, his character on display. The reason that Paul labors so hard for the maturity of believers 
is because his highest goal is not that they would be mature. His highest goal is that in them being mature, Christ would be glorified. Because what brings Christ glory? That the same believers who Christ now dwells in, who've been clothed in His righteousness, who the Father, through faith, because of grace, has declared holy, that those same believers would one day be holy, be mature, and be complete. Paul toils and struggles for the maturity of the Colossians because he wants his life's work to bring glory to Christ. I toil and struggle, Paul is saying, with everything I have so that one day you, Colossians, you, Providence, one day you will be what you already are in Christ Jesus. manifestation of God's glorious character in the person of Christ now matched in His holy people. That connection between maturity and Christ-likeness under His care and the glory of Christ is what I think is the key to unlocking what's going on at the beginning of our passage. If you were paying attention, you noticed I skipped over the first verse. It's sort of a strange verse. Colossians 1.24. Now, I, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings. That's not uncommon Paul language, right? James uses similar language. Now, I, Paul, rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now it gets different. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Back the truck up, Paul. You're claiming that you find joy in your suffering because your suffering somehow completes something that's lacking in Christ's suffering for the church? At first blush, it it seems disjointed. How does this fit in with the rest of the passage? What is Paul saying? Is is he suggesting that there's something incomplete, that what Christ did at Calvary was, was really cool and really amazing and almost good enough? But now Paul is finishing part of it? No. Paul, the rest of the New Testament, leave no room for that interpretation. If you come to that interpretation that Calvary wasn't quite enough and Paul is somehow finishing up the work of atonement, you have to ignore the rest of the New Testament. Even in verse 13 and 19 to 20 of this first chapter in Colossians, Paul clearly establishes Redemption is perfect in all that it accomplishes. Totally secured in Christ's death. So what does Paul mean by the phrase? I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's suffering. Well, the lack in Christ's afflictions would seem to be this. That while the cross is completely sufficient to redeem sinners, it lacks a present testimony among the nations. Put it this way. What is lacking in Christ's affliction is that they have to be incarnated by the body of Christ. 
That the body, through its joyful suffering, has to give personal testimony to the radical power of the gospel to provide people in the midst of the worst circumstances an unmistakable, unshakable hope of glory. Paul, in his suffering, takes joy in it because he knows as he suffers appropriately with joy, when people see his suffering and wonder, how can that man in those chains, in that prison, facing death, be joyful? He knows he bears witness to the hope of the gospel. He takes the afflictions of Christ and pushes them in front of the eyes of his audience. John Piper puts it this way. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that it's not arbitrary suffering. When you suffer, it's not arbitrary. That's the hope of Romans 8.28, right? All things are working together for good. Not for everybody, for those who love God, who've been called according to his purposes. Here's why. So the church might experience some of that suffering, the suffering he experienced, so that when we offer Christ and the Christ of the cross to people, they would see the Christ of the cross in us. What Paul fills up in the afflictions of Christ is the witness that he bears to it in his flesh. So Paul speaks of rejoicing in suffering. I rejoice as I'm bound in chains to this cold stone wall. Because this very suffering with the eternal perspective of future glory bears witness to the hope I have in a crucified and risen Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Conclude with an illustration how this comes home. Remember we talked about what glory do you live for? What glory do you dream about? What glory is your goal? How does that define you? I had a professor in college, a Greek professor. He served as a missionary in China for years. He actually taught Greek at a Chinese seminary to Chinese-speaking students. So he's kind of a bright guy. He taught and served in China for a while, and, and he learned of a woman there. This woman was, was highly intelligent. She, she was very small in stature, kind of that classic juxtaposition of as small as she was, was opposite in proportion to how brilliant she was. So this little, little woman who had a Ph.D., well-known in her field, she, she taught at the, one of the top universities in, in China, taught at the university in her city, she was also a strong believer. This is back in the early parts of the 20th century. So when, when the communist revolution swept through China and the communists came to power, they saw Christianity as a threat. And so they, thought, they sought to root out Christianity. And they, they just came down hard against the church. They expelled the missionaries. They persecuted Christians. They killed Christians. They did everything they can to drive out that Christian faith that they saw as a competition to their identity as communist China. It was illegal, according to the laws they set for Christians, to teach in the university. 
And so she had the option. She could either deny her faith, keep her position, or stand firm in her faith and lose her livelihood. Lose her identity in some ways, right? What she does, this PhD that she has. So she stood firm. She lost her position. She stripped of it. She stripped of her title. Everything she'd worked her entire life to accomplish. That wasn't far enough for the Chinese government. To add insult to injury, they took her from that city, this cosmopolitan life, and they relocated her to this obscure village. Deciding that wasn't quite enough either, they not only stripped of her position, moved her from the university out into the sticks. The sticks in China is not a good place to be. It's rudimentary, especially back in the early parts of the 20th century. The things you take for granted in city life don't exist out there. So here she is in the sticks. Limited plumbing, limited running water. What's electricity look like? Living a rustic lifestyle, and they took it a step further. Not only do they relocate her there, they give her a new job. You're not going to teach in the university. You're a Christian. That's illegal. But we've found a job perfectly suited for you as a Christian. In this rural village are latrines that need cleaning. I actually have a pastor friend who, who's been to China in some of these rural villages. And he said he actually had the joyful experience of eating some bad Chinese food and having to run out to one of these latrines. What he described was not a pleasant experience. You go out to these latrines and it's this ramshackle little shanty. It's got creaky doors. It looks like it's going to fall on top of you if the wind blows too hard and you go inside. And there's a hole dug into the ground. And then there's this nasty wooden seat that sits there, just raw wood. You close the door, not really a lock on it, so you hope people respect your privacy. And you use the restroom. Not like modern spot potties or whatever you call them here where you go and it's really gross, but you at least know like once every month you hope that it gets cleaned and emptied. Now this latrine just sits there. And people use the restroom. It does what it does when people go and the flies gather and the stink sits. And they take her and they show her and say, this, this is your earthly reward. Clean these latrines. They assumed that this humiliating work would break her. They hoped it would lead her to recant her faith. But an unpredictable thing happened. This, this small and stature woman had massive faith, had eternal hope in the glory of Christ. Shockingly, they saw that this faithful believer couldn't be broken. Not only could they not break her, she found joy in the work. The whole village knew who she was, they knew who she'd been, they knew the job that she now had, and they kind of watched and they whispered, and then they stood back in awe as day after day and week after week she went to work cleaning the latrines, scrubbing the excrement, working in the filth. And with a joy that could not be reached and could not be diminished. Her joyful suffering unwittingly became a testimony to the village. It incarnated the afflictions of Christ. In the wisdom of the communist government, they thought, we'll give her latrine duty and we'll strip her of her identity. In the wisdom of God, 
the latrine duty brought her identity of Christ out in a glorious way for the entire village to see. And so here, in the wisdom of communist China, they stick her there to make her obscure. In the wisdom of God, she goes there, and an entire village sees. She, she, she fills up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And the gospel is played out in front of their eyes. It's incarnate. They, how do you have joy like this? How, how are you not broken? How, are you not, how have you not already committed suicide? Let me tell you about Christ. The hope of glory. In this way, verse 24 and verse 29 serve as perfect bookends to the passage. Paul rejoices in his suffering and toils, struggling with all his might for the same reason. Both his testimony of personal suffering and the maturity of Christians under his care would serve to bring glory to his Savior, Christ Jesus. Remember my chains, he writes at the end. Don't be embarrassed by them. If you receive chains, don't shirk away from them. Suffering joyfully gives you the opportunity to bear testimony to the gospel of the cross. A gospel of glory this world can't comprehend. My prayer this morning is that the same would be true of us. That the hope of glory, Christ in us, would transform the way we would suffer. That it would fill us with unquenchable desire to bring everyone here to maturity in Christ. That in all of it, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the Savior of His people, might receive the glory. Might receive His honor. That He would hold up His wounds and we would cry with the throne room of heaven, worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Bow your heads.